Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. It's snowing and blowing. I'm in the middle of a snowstorm out in my stew, stew, studio. There may be some branches banging against the walls throughout this. Hopefully it doesn't uh, bother you too much. I, I don't think it's going to be that bad. Before we start in on this incredibly difficult to wrangle gorilla man, a true crime tale from the early part of the 20th century that I must admit up front was impossible to get straight. It happened so long ago that sources can't be 100% relied upon. I did my best with what I had, and the result could be that the timeline of events is not completely accurate. The events themselves, though, unfortunately, are all too real. Did I get off track immediately into this podcast? <sighs> Let's try that again. Before, before we start in on the Gorilla Man, I have a treat for you. Like a preview before a movie, it's an introduction to a podcast of which I've been following from its root. Jordan Bonaparte of the Nighttime Podcast is one of the reasons I started doing my own thing. Because I knew I could definitely do better. <laughs> I kid. I kid. I've been using my awkward charm to get in with him. And I think it's working. Check Bonaparte out and don't let his friendly tone lull you into a deep sense of comfort. His work is thorough, compelling, and slippery. I often, while listening, feel as though he's led me into the twilight zone. One of his eyeballs may be doing a loop around its socket as he paints a place, time, and out-of-the-ordinary incident for my mind's eye to clearly see. It's a great thrill for me to be able to spread the word about nighttime in this way. Hello, fellow listeners of Dark Topic. My name is Jordan, and like Jack, I'm a Canadian who spends a significant amount of my time researching for and producing an independent podcast. I wanted to use this message as an opportunity to introduce myself and invite you to check out my show. Since 2015, I've been covering true crime, mysteries, and a variety of weird and wonderful Canadian stories on my show, The Nighttime Podcast. Dark Topic listeners may enjoy my most recent episode, which covers the still-unexplained disappearance of Troy Cook from Truro in Nova Scotia. In that episode, I share the details of Troy's disappearance, primarily using excerpts of a series of conversations I had with the last person to see him, his father, Tom Cook. But if you prefer your cases solved, my most popular episode is a three-part series called The Sydney River McDonald's Murders. This series covers a robbery gone wrong turned mass murder at a McDonald's restaurant in my hometown. The series dives deep into the crime, the investigation, and the trials. So while you're waiting for Jack's next episode, or if something he said turned you off and you plan to never listen to him again, come take a listen to the Nighttime Podcast. All 50-plus episodes of my show can be found wherever you get podcasts. 
So take a moment and subscribe now to the Nighttime Podcast. Do you ever get sick of yourself like I do? The redundant thoughts, interests, and reactions that you have as a result of your experiences? The lies we tell to keep it together? Relationships end all the time because one party tires of something grating about the other. But what happens when you can't stand yourself? Can you break up with you? I think yes, at least with aspects or trends that can be replaced or modified with concerted effort. That's change. But it's hard to change if you don't see a problem. Some of us are too steeped in ignorance to realize how ignorant we are, so we just plow our way through life believing that everyone else is the problem. Some of us know what the problems are, but just can't be bothered to change as the problems aren't causing enough of a problem just yet. Then some of us identify and adjust accordingly, a kind of tuning of personal frequency to a harmonious level with those we love and care about. You can feel the people who are on your wavelength if you're a seeker of the like-minded. You can easily be drawn to them or draw them to you. By the same token, we naturally repel those who are operating on an opposite frame of mind. I've rarely been on a good frequency in my life, but my kids are changing that. I know it's up to me to help tune them, so I'm trying with all my might to be positive. And they make that easy. But I know that I'm a tragic event or two away from being tuned into sorrow and hatred and opening my door back up to those who support that mindset and celebrate it. Some of us are born tuned into negativity as a result of our inherited situation. It's our baseline. And when we see others existing on a frequency of higher quality, it doesn't inspire us. It intensifies our flawed state of mind, galvanizes it. We roll our eyes at those who we perceive as privileged, tell ourselves they don't know what the fuck is really up, and if they keep trying to push their mushy shit on us, we might just grab them and drag them into the dirt we live and thrive in, suffocating them with a reality we feel their phony constitution would never be able to bear. Some of us, eventually, after bumbling around with this poor attitude for years, decades, get to a point where it just doesn't make sense to pretend or try to fit in anymore. We wander. We take. We tolerate the bridges of support that interrupt our paths, then burn them once safely traversed. And the same way that the so-called enlightened allow themselves to release their typical troubles and bask in fuzzy feelings. The doomed sometimes roll in the mud and shamelessly lap up the spoils of letting rip in their way too. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. I present to you an old-time tale of one of the first acknowledged anomalies that we now call serial killers. A man who was born into shit and developed in a way that proved destined to contribute to the quality of shit in this world. This is S2E9, Gorilla Man, the Dark Strangler. I took a drag, I packed my bags, and I hit the city. Had I known when I left home you'd be here I would have downed another round This life ain't pretty When you're known but still alone and still unclear Earl Leonard Nelson was born on May 12, 1897, to his unwed parents James Farrell and Francis Nelson. James was known as a philanderer, and soon after the birth of his only child, he acquired syphilis. 
It wasn't long before our subject's parents had both contracted the sexually transmitted disease, a condition that was still quite deadly at this time, and as a result, Earl Nelson was orphaned a year and a half into life, his mother dying first and his father barely caring for him until he passed as well, only months later. Young Earl was taken in by his widowed grandmother, who was already struggling to support Earl's slightly older aunt and uncle. The house Earl now found himself in was a strict one, a stark contrast in his life to this point. He had come from a completely chaotic situation, but now had immense structure and rigid rules to follow. His grandmother was a devout Pentecostal by many accounts, constantly drilling her children and now grandchild about the ways of sin, not least of which was promiscuous or even recreational sex, and considering how Earl's parents had met their end, she had plenty of fuel for that fire. Earl retreated to the depths of his confused mind. He took to memorizing Bible verses to please his erratic grandma, but as he got older, he began exhibiting quirks and behavior issues. It wasn't unusual to see the young boy enter a room, then exit while calmly walking on his hands. At school, he was prone to throwing temper tantrums, picking up chairs with his teeth, or interrupting the class with what was later described as, quote, incorrigible behavior. Earl Nelson was expelled from elementary school at the age of seven as a result. Always a wanderer, even as a child. Earl must have witnessed quite the show when the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 occurred. He would have been around eight years of age. There's no doubt that he was exposed to the chaos and scenes of trauma that played out all across his city. 3,000 plus people died as a result of the quake and subsequent fires. And of a population of just over 400,000 at the time, it's estimated three quarters of that or 300,000 people were suddenly made homeless as 80% of the city went up in flames. Who knows what Earl's experiences were as he explored the city-turned-refugee camp. Considering Earl's temperament by this time, I'd wager that he found himself mixed in with some pretty shady characters as an adolescent, but because of his lifelong habit of keeping his truest thoughts to himself, we'll never know if this period had an effect on what was to become Earl Nelson's dark destiny. Compounding an already messy childhood was a terrible accident Earl starred in at the age of 10. He had taken his uncle's bike for a spin and soon found himself under one of the streetcars San Francisco's so famous for. Earl was dragged about a block before passengers and witnesses alerted the driver. He was pulled from beneath the metal beast in what today would be described as critical condition. A hole had been worn into his temple, and the shape of his head had noticeably elongated. He stayed unconscious for six days. Doctors believed he would die from his injuries, but to everyone's shock, he soon emerged from his coma, looking a little different and certainly showing some signs of change in personality. Earl became completely too much for his grandmother to handle. He was now displaying hallmarks of what today would be diagnosed as Tourette's Syndrome, the foul language that would involuntarily spew from his mouth at dinner or any other occasion where respect and manners were to be closely practiced, eventually became too much for Grandma, and she soon passed away, some believe as a direct result of stress caused by her grandson. Earl was sent to live with an aunt and uncle and cousins, who couldn't believe what they'd inherited, but because of the religious values, stuck it out. Earl had taken to masturbating at an incredible frequency by his teens, on average practicing the new hobby a dozen times a day. Huh. His cousins became a source of material for his insatiable sexual urges as he had to be closely watched around bedtime. He'd spy on his housemates, undressing without concern for being caught doing so. At some point, Earl had taken up the strange eating habit of drenching his meals in olive oil before consuming the slop at a frightening speed. In most cases, without the use of a utensil, he'd simply stick his face in the plate and suction up the mess. Headaches plagued Earl, but he found a cure in alcohol, and by the time of 15 was regularly drunk. He worked where he could, 
never staying in one position too long before he inevitably would simply walk off a job site mid-shift, never to return. Earl managed to support himself and even supply rent to his keepers, through the rare paycheck or, more often than not, by pawning stolen items. The teenager was already showing signs of becoming a scary individual. He was breaking into homes where he'd not only commit theft, but, more often than not, would spend time in the basement of said homes. He felt a peace in foreign cellars and got off on listening to families carry about their daily activities, thriving off their ignorance as to their privacy being compromised by a dark stranger just underneath their feet. It wasn't unusual for Earl to return home after days dressed in tattered clothing that didn't belong to him and covered in bruises and scratches. His adopted family didn't dare question their strange lodger about his whereabouts or activities. He was bulking up, and it didn't take a seer to deduce that this young man was dangerous as hell. By the time he entered the army around the age of 20, they had almost gotten accustomed to his incredibly odd behaviors. Maybe because as he entered adulthood, Earl started to pull it together a bit, probably understanding that for his own benefit, it best not to advertise how wild he was. Nobody's going to let a man close to them who walks on their hands, pulls out his chair with his teeth, and eats with his face, interrupting his feeding frenzy only to brutally paint with the most colorful words what he'd like to do to his table mates. Earl's aunt would later say of her nephew, Quote, he was just like a child, and we considered him like a child. And of course, we would never go too far with him, because there was always the fear of him. Quote. At the age of 18, Earl has his first major run-in with the law. In the middle of one of his little disappearing acts, he finds himself caught red-handed while burglarizing a cabin out in the woods, east of San Francisco. The owner returns and spooks Earl, who runs deep into the bush to hide. Not content in letting the thief go, the cabin owner organizes a posse who help him scour the woods until they find and capture Earl, who, judging by his mugshot photo, suffered some old-fashioned vigilante justice before he was handed over to authorities. Earl is given two years for robbery and sent to infamous San Quentin Prison, an institution that would see its fair share of serial killers in due time, most notably the night stalker Richard Ramirez, the freeway killer William Bonin, Charles Ng, and a long list of others, the scorecard killer, the trailside killer, the most famous of the group, though not technically a serial killer, Charlie Manson, spent time in what inmates affectionately refer to as the Q. Nelson, who had not yet earned his own impressive set of monikers, is released a little over a year into his sentence, a petty criminal who was about to take his first small steps towards infamy. He certainly isn't the poster boy of true crime lore. That title likely goes to maybe H.H. H. Holmes, who preferred the Venus flytrap style of victim collection. The gorilla man, on the other hand, did it his way. He hit the road, provoking a nationwide paranoia the likes of which would not be equaled until Bundy beep-beeped onto the scene in his Volkswagen Beetle, decades later. No punchbacks. Earl, now 22, begins displaying obvious signs of mental illness outside of his home. He is speaking to and taking counsel from thin air on a regular basis, following another head injury sustained after slipping then apparently swan-diving off a ladder. A worn Bible, almost always glued to his hand, he is often overheard muttering of the Antichrist making its way into the world via World War I. On March 21, 1917, after following a young girl to her residence, he pulls himself together, as he's learned to do in a pinch, and talks his way into the home, which is guarded by the girl's father, Charles Summers. Earl claims to be a plumber who's been hired to check in on basements in the area. Mr. Summers, seeing no reason not to believe the charming yet filthy alleged tradesman, tells the gorilla in a man's suit to go on into the house. Earl's cool facial demeanor likely drops to a savage, slobbering, wild-eyed expression as soon as he passes the man's shoulder. He strides silently through the dwelling and 
soon finds what he's looking for. Twelve-year-old Mary Summers is playing with her dolls inside when the less crazed stranger approaches and, without finesse, begins mauling her, attempting to rape the poor girl. Her screams alert her father and brother who rush in and manage to beat the animal off her. Earl flees, but police catch up to him and he's arrested for the assault soon after. Earl is sent to a prison farm where, for the first time, he displays his ability to escape confinement. It takes three tries, but the gorilla is loose by Christmas of 1917. He's soon arrested again on a burglary charge, but escapes the county jail he's held in by picking the lock of his cell. He's on the lam, but in a time where changing identities was as simple as creating a new name for yourself, he eludes capture without much effort. Earl signs up for the army, hoping for a fresh start. A month and a half into this new venture, he decides it's not for him while on guard duty one cold night, and simply walks away from his post. He heads to Utah with aspirations of becoming a Mormon, but this too fails to keep Earl interested in. He's soon back in California where he joins the Navy. After displaying an unwillingness to work and preference for reading the Bible in his bunk while holding conversation with the phantoms in his head, Earl finally raises the eyebrows of superiors with his wacky fire and brimstone chatter and is sent to Napa State Mental Hospital, the only logical solution. Earl is a major handful. He's crazy and strong. Nobody knows what to do with him. He claims the reason he's so prone to going AWOL and averse to completing his duties is that he has a constant, quote, burning around my anus. Doctors diagnose Earl as suffering from a constitutional psychopathic state that's so deep-seated it's resistant to medication or therapy. It's his personality that's the issue, basically. Earl is treated for a couple of STDs he's picked up along the way from his near-constant visits to the seedier parts of the city, where I'm certain more than one unfortunate woman of the night met her end by his hand. Scantily clad corpses were fairly commonplace near the harbors of the early great cities. The killers back on their ships and safely at sea before their wild night's grisly result could be catalogued by an overworked and desensitized copper's pen. Earl escapes multiple times from the Napa State Mental Hospital, earning himself the nickname Houdini, but is recaptured each time as he has a tendency to stand out. Eventually he manages to elude the men in white for a significant period of time and is discharged on paper, the notes from his file declaring him, quote, not violent, homicidal, or destructive. Just crazy and on the loose is all. It's not long before Earl, in typical fashion, throws a monkey wrench into a new situation he's established with his short-expiring charm. He courts a woman three times his age, a 66-year-old who is at first completely taken by the young man of 22 that seems nothing but sweet, attentive, even a little dashing, albeit a bit quirky, but that at first is endearing as well. So she agrees to marry him on extremely short notice and the two enjoy a honeymoon phase before the honey turns black and Earl begins breaking his new bride's mental state down into crystallized chunks that he stomps all over with the heels of his hands as he performs his trademark inverted stroll across her psyche. It's a terrible marriage. Earl's demands for sex are just too much for his near-elderly wife. He begins disappearing for days, sometimes weeks, returning broke, disheveled, and wearing clothes that look as if he liberated them from a putrefied corpse. Earl's wife flees to the hospital, where she checks herself in for exhaustion. Her crazed hubby is taken to dropping his pants and masturbating on his apparently insignificant other when she rebuffs his constant advances. Earl's not averse to beating on her literally as well. Wink. And when he finally tracks her down at the hospital, he attacks and attempts to rape his wife in her bed. As staffers, alerted to the poor woman's screams, rush to the room where, eventually, after considerable effort, they manage to pull the gorilla off of their patient. Earl is arrested and sent back to the mental hospital, where from, of course, he soon escapes. 
After days on the run from a half, uh, make that quarter-hearted search party, the hospital discharges their off-escape patient to save face. Earl materializes on the porch of the only home he now knows. It's in the dead of night when he makes his return apparent in the creepiest of ways at his adoptive family's living room window. Of this incident, we have documentation from a later interview with Earl's infinitely patient aunt. Quote, He had his face right against the glass with a horrible crazy hat on, and I let out a terrible scream because he looked so awfully insane. His eyes were just black, glaring at me, and the children rushed up to me, and of course, I opened the door because he was my own flesh and kin, and I loved him. End quote. Although there is no search party out for Earl, he doesn't know this, and soon hits the road, using a mix of hitchhiking and riding the rails to make his way across the country, eventually crash landing in Philadelphia. He uses the almost 3,000 mile trek to formulate a terrible plan, one that was sure to keep him satisfied in every way he craved, but held the significant risk of him losing his life seated in an electrified chair, affectionately nicknamed Old Smokey, that Philly had recently plugged into the depths of its prison system. Earl Nelson wanted three things. One, to be viewed as a respectable man of God. The Bible verses that he memorized were about the only tool he possessed that impressed. Two, have money to derelict about with. And three, occasionally be granted around ten minutes alone with the corpse of a woman. For all three of these wishes to come true, there needed only one factor to be introduced to the gorilla man's already volatile life's plan. He needed to kill. So, after a few excited conversations with himself, he decides that he'll let go of what little grasp he still has on his impulses and allow the optimum world of his dark fantasy to fall into his horrendously strong and ape-like hands. Now I don't know If I can go on without you Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language and that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered, It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started for a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody. Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zippix Nicotine Toothpicks. Zippix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zippix Toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, 
and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12 infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zippixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zippix nicotine toothpicks. But if I stay, one of us better unload the gun. All of those times when I'm about to finally see your content. The color it a mystery. The gorilla man began his life of murder on a Sunday. October 18th, 1925. Less than a month later, he would flee from Philadelphia, leaving in his wake three dead women, all landladies who had at their respective residences posted room-for-rent signs in their windows and attracted a wolf in sheep's clothing to their doors. Of the eventual 20-plus targets, only one that I know of managed to avoid being slain, and her account, which we'll get to soon enough, gives us some idea as to Earl Nelson's M.O., Many have speculated, but this we know for certain. Before knocking on the door of a prospective victim, Earl would clean himself up. He wanted to disarm his prey with charm. He posed as a man of God, a worn Bible always in his hand, a fresh haircut, shaved on the sides, slicked back at the top, an ill-fitting suit on his short, stocky frame, the reason for this poor fit usually being that it had been stolen from a recently widowed husband's wardrobe, and finally, a guise of humility permeating from his big, soft eyes. Once allowed entry, Earl would maybe sit down for tea or coffee, reciting a verse of scripture or two, then request to be given a tour. If the house appeared to be vacant, or at least quiet, with the other lodges tucked away in their rooms, Earl would wait for his moment, then blindside his host, who would narrowly register what was happening before being viciously beaten to near unconsciousness. Next, Earl would tie her up with what was described by investigators as a complicated sailor's knot, then strangled the helpless woman to death with his freakishly strong hands. For the gorilla man, this was when the fun began. Every woman that he strangled to death would later be found with their dress pulled up over their hips, a result of having been defiled posthumously. It's not perfectly clear to me how every autopsy performed showed that the bodies had suffered necrophilic acts, but from what I can tell, it has something to do with a lack of blood pressure in a dead body, and the amount of blood that was found to have leaked from tears caused by the indecent acts the gorilla performed with great gusto, apparently, on his victim's carcasses. Some serious beating around the bush on my part there. But also on the part of the gorilla man as well, if you catch my drift. <laughs> if you know what I'm clearly fucking saying, in the most insensitive of ways for some reason. Earl is riding the rails back west before the Philadelphia police, who have their hands full with the mob, know what hit them. 
Clothing, money, and jewelry found to be missing from the near-identical crime scenes is collected from a pawn shop on the north side of Philly. The description of the man who pawned the items is vague. It's shared to the public that there's a madman on the loose with an olive complexion, possibly Greek. Earl Nelson has a new nickname as a result. He'll learn it from the papers as time passes and the bodies piled up. The Dark Strangler makes the long trek home, leaving behind an entire city paralyzed with fear. February 20th, 1926, San Francisco. The nephew of a 62-year-old widowed landlady heads downstairs from his room, planning on repairing the house's furnace. The smells of breakfast greet him as he enters the kitchen, where he expects to find his aunt cooking, but to his surprise the area is deserted. On the stove sits a pan with partially cooked sausage in it. The burner is off. The nephew finds this odd, but doesn't pay it too much mind as he continues on his way down to the basement. He's surprised again when he runs into a stranger leaving at his side door. The man, who has a hat low over his face and holds a coat up to cover his mouth, blurts out as he exits, quote, Tell the landlady I'll return in an hour. I wish to rent the bedroom. Then he's gone. The nephew carries on to his chore and, once finished, comes back upstairs to an eerily quiet house. He observes the sausages again that now look like bloated, dead fingers. Panic suddenly provokes him to begin searching for his aunt, who he eventually discovers in the washroom of one of the vacant rooms. She's propped on the toilet, her dress up over her hips, eyeballs protruding as a result of being strangled, this time with a sheet. Four days later in San Jose, another 62-year-old landlady is found dead in a room for rent by her husband. The papers get wind of the identical homicides, and soon the heat is on in the Bay Area. The Dark Strangler has crossed the country. It's unknown that he's actually returned rather than arrived, but no matter. He's gone for good now. Hitchhiking, rail riding, and driving the occasional stolen car on an incredible zigzagging murder tour, the likes of which the world had not yet experienced to this point. Earl Nelson, godfather of nomadic serial killers. Two weeks later and over 300 miles south, a Santa Barbara railway man is dozing in his rented bed after a grueling night shift when He's stirred awake by an incessant thumping noise coming from the neighboring room. He gets up, clad only in his underwear, and creeps to a rattling door where he crouches and puts an eye to the keyhole to see what all the banging's about. As he maybe had hoped, a peep show is in full throat. A stocky gentleman who wears a rumpled suit of which the pants are down around the knees thrusts away as a woman lies limply on the bed. It takes a moment, but the wide-eyed tenant soon realizes he's not taking in an early morning quickie. That's the landlady on the bed a married woman in her late fifties, and the casual look on her bloodied face isn't one of slack apathy. It's of vacant death. The frightened witness heads back to his room where he quietly dresses, and, as he does so, hears the murderous dog exit the room, then the house. After a quick glance in to confirm the terrible scene, the tenant rushes to find help, and soon finds it in the form of the victim's husband, who rushes upstairs to find his wife in her horrible death pose. A cord wrapped around her neck, her dress up over her hips, and blood everywhere, the landlady's brutally beaten face being the source of much of it. The Dark Strangler heads to Portland, Oregon, where he decides to start hiding the bodies to buy time. He kills a 35-year-old landlady and stuffs her in a trunk that he finds in the attic. When the smell finally alerts her 15-year-old son and his mother is discovered, the police initially conclude the death to be accidental somehow. I didn't read any report of her being a part-time magician or contortionist, so... I'm at a loss as to how they came to that conclusion. Earl experiences his only documented miss at this time. 
He attempts to bait a landlady upstairs to see about a broken door, but the woman refuses to join the brash, arrogant gorilla who is starting to get casual about killing. He's behaving as though the lead-up to the kill is too tedious. She stands by the open front door of her home, sensing the danger, and Earl soon tromps back downstairs where he enters the basement. He calls up for her to join him and see about something wrong with the furnace. Again, she refuses, calling back down for the deranged man to come see her flowers outside. This is a ploy to get him out of her house, obviously. Earl wildly exits the home, spitting at the backpedaling landlady that her flowers can go to hell before disappearing down the street. Later that day, Earl takes out his frustrations on a 37-year-old widow and hides the woman's carcass in a crawl space where her father eventually discovers it. Not long after this, he destroys another landlady and stuffs her behind a furnace. Portland police realize that the Dark Strangler has arrived and put the word out, along with a description given by the fortunate flower lady. Earl is renting a room at the time, and the landlady of this home recognizes her tenant as fitting the description, with his rumpled suit, dark complexion, and air of instability. She notifies police, but they're a step behind. The Strangler's gone, but he's left behind a key piece of evidence, his given name on the registry of the rooming house. Conversations with Earl Nelson's family give the press some tasty pieces of information. The Dark Strangler is an escaped mental patient who walks on his hands, picks up furniture with his teeth, and eats every meal with his face after drowning in an olive oil. Earl earns the nickname I haven't been able to resist preemptively using throughout this episode to this point. The Gorilla Man is born, and nobody knows where he's headed, or where he'll turn up next. Earl bounces around the country, killing and robbing as he goes in his customary fashion. In Oregon City, he scores a diamond ring and almost ten bucks in cash from a wealthy landlady whose grisly death raises major alarm bells. Earl escapes capture, pulling himself into the car of a freight train and travels 1,500 miles east to Iowa where he makes a pit stop to kill a 49-year-old landlady before hitching to Kansas City where he takes the life of a mother and daughter just days after the Christmas of 1926. The mother, a 28-year-old landlady, as is typical, dies in brutal fashion before being joined by her eight-month-old daughter, who the gorilla strangles to death as well, allegedly with her cloth diaper. The dark strangler is everywhere. Press can't get enough. In New Jersey, three landladies turn up strangled. Philly is cursed with another visit. Buffalo, New York is terrorized in late May of 27. Two days later, the strangler kills two women at once. In Detroit, one a landlady, the other a tenant. Earl visits Chicago, where a 27-year-old woman is soon discovered by her husband, an electrical cord wrapped around her neck, her dress up over her head. Later, the husband will find that his good suit is missing from the closet. By the summer of 1927, Earl Nelson has killed over 20 women. It has been less than two years since he began his killing spree, and he can feel the noose beginning to tighten about his own neck. It's time to travel north, to Canada, where he tells himself a fresh start awaits. He plans on flying straight and leaving his dark deeds behind him. Keeping his hands to himself will be a challenge, but he must. Canada has no extradition treaty with the U.S. in 1927, so there's a real chance that he can escape from the certain penalty of death he'll face if held to account for the enormous pile of bodies he's accrued in his short killing career. Earl is picked up while hitchhiking just outside of Luna, Michigan. The driver is headed home to Winnipeg from Detroit and will later recall having given a ride to the man he'll later see plastered all over his local paper. The hitchhiker had been an odd one, requesting to be dropped off near the border so he could walk across. Also, Earl had tipped his hand when bragging to the driver of the regular work he had on a ranch up in Canada. If he truly had, he would have known that there are no ranches up north. They're just called farms. Regardless, Earl walks over the border without incident and eventually, after another hitch ride, 
ends up at a second-hand store in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He trades in the expensive suit he's stolen for a blue herringbone coat, black boots, pants, a felt hat, and a dollar. It must have been some suit, maybe one worthy of a man wearing it to his wife's funeral. Earl takes his dollar and finds a room for rent. He introduces himself to the landlady as Mr. Woodcotts, a religious man from the U.S., here to work. He's shown to a small room where he manages to resist killing his host. That night, Earl is standing out front for some air when Lola Gowan, a 14-year-old girl, selling flowers to help support her family as her father was ill, approaches Earl and asks if he'd be interested in buying. The gorilla man takes a quick look around. It's 10 p.m., but still the sun has not yet retreated entirely from the prairie sky. Seeing that the street is deserted, he invites the girl inside, claiming to have money in his room. Lola enters the house, follows the polite gentleman upstairs, and is beaten, strangled, raped, and stuffed under the bed for later, all before the last light fades. Earl Nelson had nearly abstained from murder on his first day in Canada, but it wasn't meant to be. Exhausted, he lays down over the young lady's corpse and falls asleep. The next morning, Earl pulls the dead girl out from under his mattress and again has his way, before reluctantly restashing her and making the bed pulling the blanket down to the floor to hide his shameful act, and, more importantly, to buy himself time as he moves on down the road. It doesn't take long for him to spot a room-for-rent sign outside of a home that had recently been purchased by a family of four from Ireland. Earl knocks on the door and is soon conversing with the lady of the house, a young Irish mother of two whose husband was off at work. Earl offers to do some repairs around the home in exchange for a bed. A deal is struck, and... Earl is observed by neighbors fixing a screen door early that day. Once he completes the task, the gorilla man takes his hammer, creeps up behind the young mother as she works in the kitchen, and bludgeons her to death. He then carries her to the master bedroom and defiles the body before hiding it under the bed. Next, he ransacks the house, finding the family's savings, $70, hidden in a compartment. Earl helps himself to an oversized suit to replace his blood-soaked clothes. Finally, he spot-cleans gore that has been strewn about the floors, then exits the partially repaired screen door, looking like a shrinking salesman. He heads straight to the second-hand store, where he trades the bulky suit in for a better fit. Two days, two murders. It's time to exit the city. But first, he opts to spend some of his cash on a hair wash and cut. When the barber asks the stranger about the blood he finds in his hair, Earl makes a scene, demanding the barber just do his work and shut the fuck up. Having left a lasting impression, the gorilla man heads to Saskatchewan, a trip that would have taken him right past my house, 90 years ago. That night, after searching everywhere for his missing wife, the owner of the home Earl invaded early that day will kneel down to pray for the mother of his children to appear. His prayer is immediately answered when he adjusts his knees and grazes her limp arm. The body of 14-year-old Lola Gowan is discovered soon after by a tenant who spots what he initially believes to be the mannequin of a little girl under his rented bed. It's quickly understood that the infamous Dark Strangler has come north. The end is nigh for Gorilla Man. His face is plastered on every newspaper across Canada over the following days, and it's not long before the tips begin to roll in from the small prairie towns where strangers are not only noticed, they're approached and figured out within 20 minutes of their arrival. Earl is seeing and hearing his description everywhere. Luck is still on his side when he hitches a ride with a scrap dealer back towards the border. The meandering route his ride takes, searching out rusty gold, keeps Earl off the main roads and away from the checks that are being run by patrols. In Wacopa, Manitoba, which sits about five miles from the U.S. border, 
He's dropped off and immediately recognized by a clerk at a general store who calls him in. The officer who responds finds Earl Nelson walking a lonely stretch of road, only a dusty hike from the U.S. border. He makes the arrest without incident. It appears the nightmare is finally over. Earl Nelson is placed in an old cell of the small town's police station. The arresting officer, who is the lone cop on duty this evening, frisks his prisoner, takes away his shoes, then heads off to call Winnipeg for further orders. The gorilla man begins tearing his bunk apart and is amazed to find a rusty nail file in the process. He picks the lock of his cell and escapes into the night, unnoticed. The arresting officer returns, whistling a tune and spinning his keys. The sight of the empty cell likely sends him whirling in comical fashion back to the phone, like Barney Fife. Earl may be loose, but he's far from free. He holes up in a grain elevator by the tracks as an intense manhunt organizes. It's not until morning that he hears the distant whistle of an approaching train. He creeps out from hiding, and his luck finally runs out. A patrolling officer spots Earl preparing to grab onto a rail car and rushes him, freezing the strangler with his gun. Earl claims to be a farmer named Virgil Wilson. The officer's dubious. His suspect is shoeless and wearing the clothes of a city slicker. When asked where his farm is, Earl points to a building the officer knows is a slaughterhouse. The cuffs come out. The gorilla man is truly captured. He's boarded onto a Winnipeg-bound train that's packed with police officers. A crowd of over 4,000 people greet the dark strangler, who is barely escorted alive to a cell where he awaits trial. His prints are sent to San Quentin, where it's confirmed that the man in custody is indeed Earl Nelson. Justice is refreshingly swift. On Friday the 13th, 1928, Gorilla Man, the Dark Strangler, has led up a wooden set of steps to the gallows in downtown Winnipeg, where a hood goes over his head, then a noose. He shouts at his last words, quote, I am innocent. I stand innocent before God and man. I forgive those who have wronged me and ask forgiveness of those I have injured. God have mercy. He's then unceremoniously dropped through a trap door. The rope is too short and he swings for almost 20 minutes, bucking gasping and wheezing until he finally is fittingly strangled to death let's stay friends we'll make amends down at the depot cause everybody knows how the story goes except for you and me I promise to ride if Big thanks to Tyler Jakes for providing his song, Color It a Mystery, for this episode. Visit tylerjakes.com or search him out on iTunes for more of his work. This particular tune was off of his Burning Down the Underground album. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch, or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs>